Alright. We get it. You like each other. Well, we are in Judges chapter 11. We're going to be studying the life of Jephthah, the Gileadite. And this evening, we're going to learn a lot about value. Not values per se, but what we associate with value. Who's important, who's not important. What things are important to us at one time and are not important to us at another. And we're going to see the life of another broken individual that's used by God, by His grace, to deliver His people. In the meantime, we're going to see the ups and the downs that come with a life that's spent serving God and then also just a life that's lived because we're going to see that that's not always what Jephthah's after. So let's go before the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to read the first eight verses of chapter 11 together. Lord, we thank You for Your grace and for Your mercy. We thank you that through the lives of these individuals, their dreams and aspirations, their hopes and their fears, Lord, their worries, their anxieties, the difficulties that they went through, we are able to learn and apply that to our lives as you lead us and direct us. And so we thank you for this study this evening and pray that you would teach us as you're so faithful to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verses 1 through 8, it says, Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. But he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's war, wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. It came to pass after time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tob. And then they said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders out of Gilead, Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. What a life already. You know, how would you like to have your life summed up in eight verses? I mean, his whole childhood, his adolescence, his adulthood, here it is summed up in eight verses. He doesn't pick his family. He doesn't get to pick his mom. He doesn't get to pick the situation into which he's born in. And we find out that he's an illegitimate son of a harlot. And so his uh, father, he, I know it can seem convi- a little confusing, excuse me. He's from Gilead, and his dad's name is Gilead. How convenient. So he is Jephthah the Gileadite because he's from Gilead, but his father's name is Gilead. And Gilead had an adulterous relationship, had a child out of wedlock, and here's Jephthah. So we know that the nation of Israel is an agrarian society, and it's a land-based legal system. And so as he grows up, the legitimate, quote-unquote, sons say, get out. You ain't getting anything. You're not getting my inheritance. You don't get an inheritance. You get nothing. And so they kick him out. They chase him to the hills, literally. He goes to the hills. As he does that, 
it says here that they gathered worthless men together. Now, this could be translated all kinds of different ways, but what it means is these guys have no land, no title. They're probably very similar to him. And so they may be other illegitimate sons, or maybe they're criminals, or maybe they're just wanderers, or uh, whatever it is. He gathers together a band, and they're robbers. They're out there just trying to scrape out a living. And so they're tough as nails. They're the biker gang of that time. Um, now, the Scripture in the original Hebrew doesn't say whether or not they're doing things that are illegal or not. You know, how mean are they? We really don't know. But they're tough enough that when the Ammonites are about to come up from the south and they're about to invade Israel, Israel says to themselves, yeah, we need some help here. Who do we go to? Who's the toughest guy in the land? Oh, yeah, Jephthah. You remember that guy? Yeah, he robbed your cousin the other day. You remember that? He was a mean guy. We should use him. Now, I'm stretching a little bit, so we've got to be careful from the text. But he's tough enough that they go to him. I, I mentioned earlier in our introduction, we talk about value. What is value? What is Jephthah's value? How popular is he when he's a kid growing up as an illegitimate son? What does society think about him as he's running to the hills? All right, what's his value when he has a gang? And he's got some power and authority. He's still not looked upon with any amount of respect. He's still not looked on as an individual that you want to you follow or you, know, you want to invite over to your house and introduce him to your daughter. But then what's Jephthah's value when the Ammonites invade? How does the country look to him? They're coming to him now and saying, hey, can you help us? Can you deliver us? Can you be the commander? Can you be the leader? There's a lot for us to pick apart here for our personal lives because you may perceive yourself now based on what society tells you your worth is. For whatever your situation is, you're retired, you're in a career, you're trying to find a career, you're a young person trying to make your life, you're trying to find a spouse, you're whatever situation, the amount of money in your bank account, your relationships with other people, and you begin to place value on yourself based on how society sees you. But God does not look at us that way. The Lord is no respecter of persons. None of us earns any prestige in His sight. And so Jephthah, what is the very first words that come in this chapter? It says that Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor. It doesn't say became a mighty man of valor. It doesn't say he was a mighty man of valor for a, a certain amount of time and then he retired. The Bible records him as a mighty man of valor. There's a lot to be said about ourselves. We need to be very careful when it comes to our own perception. We remember from Sunday morning that pride is something that God hates with a capital H. It is something He is not happy with. And pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall, the Bible says. So we don't want to look to ourselves and then do the opposite, add value because other people do, and think that we mean something. We are all just people before God. We're souls. We're His souls that He created. That's it. And we need to treat people the way that Jesus treats people. We need to see people the way that Jesus sees people, not the way that society does. In this society in America, pastors at one time were put on a pedestal. And now they're ridiculed and they're laughed at, the exact opposite, at least in um, secular society. I'll give you some examples before we continue down the text. 
look at how a pastor or a spiritual leader is projected in the media in the 1950s, 40s, and 30s. Look at how a pastor or a spiritual leader is um, projected in the media from the 1960s to today. And you'll say, wow, that's a big difference. Now, let's not just pick on pastors like they're some kind of special people. Look at fathers. Look how fathers are projected in the media over the years. Again, what are we trying to do? We are inoculating ourselves from having the same viewpoint of human beings as society projects on people. If somebody comes in here and says they live in Wexford, do we treat them different as if they said they just got out of rehab? See, we are putting society's values on people. That person that comes out of rehab could be a mighty man of valor, as far as God is concerned. We have no idea where their journey is going. Jephthah is reminding us of that. All right, so the Ammonites, going back to the text, they've come up from the south. They want to wage war. This is Old Testament warfare. There's no Geneva Conventions at that time. They are coming up to slaughter, take over, and rule that land. That's what's up against them. And they're having the conversation with Jephthah, hey, will you be our commander? Will you be our leader? And this is what happens now. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words now before the Lord in Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered the messenger of Jephthah, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore these lands peaceably. So there's even there's quite a bit here now between verses 9 and 13. What's going on? So first, we are still at the negotiating table with the nation of Israel, with the leaders. And they say, will you be our commander? And Jephthah says, no, I don't want anything to do with you. You guys forsook me. The Ammonites are probably better anyway. In fact, it's your laws that mean I can't have any land in my family. It's your laws that took my family and they kicked me out. And it's because of them and that God, I don't want to serve them. I'm going to serve false gods now. No, Jephthah doesn't do any of those things without bitterness or hatred. It's his people. What does he say, though? Because he's a wise man. Oh, you need me in the time of crisis. In the darkest moments, you come and talk to me. So when this battle is over and when the Lord delivers us, notice that. Who will be the head then? Who's going to be in charge? I will be in charge. And they say, yes, we'll make a promise before God that after you deliver us from the Ammonites, you will be in charge. You will be the leader, the judge over the land. Who raised this smart guy? And what kind of mourning did he have the day before this happens? Like, did he know it was coming? Did they send envoys or did they just show up on his doorstep and he's willing to make this nation-building negotiation? Like, who's going to be president of the United States? Who's going to be the leader of Israel? This is the negotiation that's going on. Oh, I'll win your war for you in the name of Jehovah. And when I do, I will be king or I'm not doing it. 
Okay, we'll do it. Where did this guy come from? He came from trials and tribulations and being rejected time and time again, being the cast off and the reject of society. And now they have an open checkbook for him. And the same thing is true in our lives today. You have no idea what things God is using, the difficulties and trials you're going through now. But I tell you this, be prepared for these moments in your life. Talk with anyone with experience in this room right now. They will tell you that the biggest jumps and changes in their lives came from four or five decisions. Four or five major decisions changed the trajectory, changed the line on the way they were going to live. I know I got a couple. And you have to be ready for those decisions when they happen because you never know when they're coming. You, you got to wonder, like I have that, I, I grew up as a you know, 1990s, early 2000s kid, so I grew up on movies all the time, and so I have to put things in kind of like a movie perspective. Was he in like the lowest of lows before this all happened, and looking at the sky, you know, God, why did you do this to me? And then all of a sudden they come around the corner and they're like, oh, by the way, I got Willy Wonka's golden ticket here. You want to be king? <laughs> There's just one snatch. There's one catch here. You got to go beat a huge army. Oh, thank you, God. I'm ready to go. Like, how did this happen? Or, or did all the time, did he know this was going to happen? You know, he's just that guy, like, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to work double shift and nights, and, you know, we're going to get this gang going. And then, you know, one day they're going to know who I am. We have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. All we know is that God is using society's reject. Now, you think that negotiation is intense. As soon as they agree that he's the commander, he's the leader, he is now an international diplomat. He immediately sends an envoy an envoy to the Ammonites to negotiate with them. Like, this doesn't sound like a ringleader to me. This doesn't sound like some tribal guy or some cast-off or reject, the high school dropout. He immediately sends an envoy very intelligently and says, why are you invading Israel, Ammonites? What's going on? And they tell him back. A long time ago, your people came through this territory and they took over this land from my ancestors. And we want it back. That sounds like a legitimate claim. Oh, maybe there's a, you know, maybe we'll negotiate this. Maybe you can have half of it back or we'll rent it back to you. Or, you know, what is Jephthah going to do here? How is he going to handle this situation? I want to be crystal clear here. He went from being a gang leader in the mountains to being a king, and now he's negotiating international peace. What just happened here? Well, now verses 14, the rest of the negotiations happened, 14 through 28. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, and he said to him, Thus says Jephthah, I am the king of Israel. No, that's not what he wrote. Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from, the, from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please, let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent the king to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. 
And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab, came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for Arnon was the border of Moab. When, then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together, encamped in Jahaz, and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites, from the Arnon to the Jabbok, from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zephor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aror and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon, for three hundred years, why did you not recover them within that time? Therefore I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words which Jephthah said to him. Oh, I, I didn't mention that part. The Ammonites, when they said that Israel had taken their land, yeah, that was 300 years ago. Oh, you caught that? Oh, because that's kind of happening in our society today. You know, things that happened 300 years ago, they're like, no, 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 we want that back now. It's like, excuse me? Now, I also want us to catch here, Gilead, the Gileadites, Jephthah, Jephthah is giving a precise, historical, logical, and legal defense of their position. Where did this guy come from? He came from the hills. Now, notice, though, that as the Lord is moving in him and working in him and whatever he did in his life to raise him up, this is a mistake that people make on a personal level, especially young people. So let's just put it this way. Jephthah came out of the hood. He came out of the hood, and now he's doing international politics. He is not acting like he's from the hood. You don't take that with you. Leave it where it was. Leave that alone. You're going to rise to the occasion. Well, I'm just being authentic with myself. Okay, let's just put it this way, because people talk about this. Well, I'm just being authentic. You act different on an interview than when you're hanging out with your buddies. You for darn sure better be acting different when you're having that conversation with your future father-in-law or mother-in-law. Like you have different behaviors for different areas. That's not being not authentic. That's being intelligent. Because we want to be there in those four or five decision-making positions in our life. When those happen, we make the right decision and we act on it and we're prepared. We're ready to do so. You, you, can't, you can't act like a child throughout your life and then expect that you're going to have successful 
decision-making, and life-changing interactions with society. You can't play a victim for your life. If there's anyone who could play a victim, it is Jephthah. He is not playing a victim here. Again, he went from the hills. Did I say hills or hood? Because we're going to use them the same. He came from the mission hills. And he comes out. And now he's on the level of international politics, and he is precise, historical, logical, legal defense. But then it comes out. You, you guys catch it a little bit? Because as, he's, as he continues to give his defense to the Ammonites, he gets nasty with them. What does he say? He says, will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? You, you guys didn't catch that? He's saying, our God... He won 300 years ago. We wanted to go through peace. Your guy, your king, your ancestor, your founding father, he didn't want to play nice. And so he tried to ambush us and attack us, and we won. And God gave it, and for 300 years we've had this land. Aren't you happy with whatever your God gives you? Like, if your God's more powerful, he would have won. That's what he's saying. You know, imagine the United Nations and somebody starts calling out George Washington and calling out the Constitution in front of everyone. But that's the level of what's happening here. You see, Jephthah, he may be showing his diplomatic, intelligent, um, and his regal side, but he's ready to fight. This is not a problem for him, and it really sums him up. This is why the nation of Israel went to him. They didn't want him to be a thug. But they want him to be tough in the tough moments. And how did he get that way? Because of every tough moment that he had growing up his whole life. Everything was stacked against him all the time. He is used to all the odds being against him. So the question is, is it because Jephthah is so good or is it because God is blessing and raising him in spite of the society around him? That's a little bit of both. See, God gave him the attributes that he has, the wherewithal, the willpower, the intelligence, but we know it's his spirit that's coming upon him, and we're going to see that more specifically here in a little bit. They go together. That's important for us to understand because when the spirit of God comes upon a person, we think that God takes them over like they're a slave. No, every decision you're making in your life, you are making it. God is not mocked. That as you sow, that shall you also reap. Your decisions. And so we need to be wise with that. Jephthah's making some good one. So, continuing, he's saying to them, if your God's so powerful and your people are so powerful, what are you going to do about it? I'm ready to fight. You have, we haven't done anything wrong, he says. And at the end of verse 27, may the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. You want to fight? Let's fight. So now in verses 29 through 33. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. From Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. 
and he defeated them from Aror as far as Minith, twenty cities, and to Abel Kimmerim with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. We're going to stop there. Now, I, this portion of Scripture gets overshadowed by the next portion of Scripture because we see this vow that he makes. Who told him to make this vow? Remember, it is so important when we're going through the Scriptures, description, proscription. God is just recording what is happening here. That's it. He's not telling him to do anything. He's not telling them to make this vow. He's not telling them to keep this vow. He, this is all on his own. He's making this decision. And so now he's going into battle. The Spirit of God is upon him. Does he know it or not? I think no, but I have no idea. We'll find out. And we do not want to take this lightly. This is a 20-city campaign, hand-to-hand, physical combat, and there's a very great slaughter. This guy knows how to fight. He knows how to get people to fight, and he knows how to keep them fighting. This is a long campaign, but they are victorious. One nation against another nation for the survival, for their existence. We're seeing that right now with the Ukraine versus Russia. And it's a long slog, and people are dying every single day while we're eating our Cheetos, watching YouTube videos, and going to church. And this is life and death. And Jephthah's victorious. And now he's the king, or he's the commander, we should say, not really appointed king. I I use that interchangeably to mean leader. But he made a vow to God, right? What did he say? Whatever comes out the door when I come home. What was he thinking was going to happen? Maybe a goat or a sheep. I don't know. Maybe he was hoping a bird. Maybe he was hoping a cockroach came out. But he says, whatever comes out, I'm going to give it as a burnt offering to God. I'm going to light that thing up and give it wholly to the Lord. Well, now we read verses 34 through 40. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her and neither son nor daughter, And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. For I have given my word to the Lord. I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what is gone out of your mouth. Because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, go. And he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and they bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And it was so at the end of two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. I don't, I don't know what happened to her. Was she put up on that altar and burned as a burnt offering? It's possible. Was she dedicated to the service of the tabernacle? And that's what it means there by she knew no man and she was a perpetual virgin? Maybe. I do know this. This is the time of the judges. Historically speaking, they were worshiping false gods, not Jehovah, and they would offer their children as sacrifices to false gods. It is not impossible to imagine that he kept this vow. Why? Break the vow, man. This is your only daughter. Your daughter dies. 
you're a liar. Hmm, which one am I going to pick? But our society is different. We have completely different cultural norms here. Isn't it interesting that we judge other people by our cultural norms? In Venezuela, they have completely different cultural norms than they do in Honduras and they do in Mexico, than they do in the Middle East. And in the Middle East, they have completely different cultural norms in Saudi Arabia than they do in Afghanistan. And we go and we judge other people based on American society cultural beliefs when we should have biblical beliefs and principles. Especially in America now where we're seeing society's cultural norms change so much, just like the time of the judges. I find it fascinating that this man's vow to God in his culture and in his life is more important, more valuable to him than his own daughter than the legacy of his family. His word, his vow, his oath is more important. And this is non-negotiable. And then on top of this, you want to talk about culturally completely radical from us? His daughter says, yes, Dad, you're right. Yes, Dad, if you made a vow to God, that's the way it goes. That stinks. Can I get a two-month vacation at least before you torch me? Or before you... Get me in perpetual service to the tabernacle. She's like, I'm not choosing my husband. I'm not choosing my career. We're not talking about can I have a late, can I stay up late, can I use the car? She says, no. You say this is the way it's supposed to be, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. And she has to be of marrying age. This is insane for us in our culture. I would hope that my daughter would look me in the, in the eye and say, number one, you're going to a psych ward. Number two, you don't own me. Don't touch me. I'm leaving. I'm going wherever I want because this is America. <laughs> I would pray that would be the case. You see how completely different this time is. And so I said earlier, we have to be careful with what we value and how we value it. Are we valuing things because of the perceptions of others? You could be completely rejected and you could feel like the whole world's against you and, and it may be good. Good. You're in a great place. You could be feeling applauded and everyone's coming to you, asking for decisions, asking for you to do things, asking for your opinion, looking up for you. And you could be a complete dirtbag, completely corroded on the inside. And sooner or later, people will know. What is it our favorite in society? We like to see people rags to riches, and then we like to see them back to rags again, and then we like to see them come back up again and redeemed. And, and we have some kind of sick pleasure about that, but not with God. He doesn't look at those things. Remember, the Lord is no respecter of person. There's some other things that we need to see here. He's willing to sacrifice his family for his name. Are you willing to sacrifice your neighbor, your family for your career? Are you willing to sacrifice your family for your pleasure? Are you willing to sacrifice them for fill in the blank? Or are you willing to do things for them, sacrifice for them? I don't have a right and a wrong answer for what is the line between when you invest in your family and when you invest in your career and when you invest in the Lord. My only word of advice that I give, especially young men that want to be in the ministry or that want to be in business, I tell them this. There is no such thing as work-life balance. It does not exist. 
You will never be in a position where you say, oh, I've made it. I have the perfect balance of time with my family and the business and with the Lord. This is it right here. I've got the pie slices perfect. It doesn't happen because the needs of one or the other are never the same and they're never at the same time. If your family is going through an emergency, they get your focus. When you need to pay the bills and the business is in trouble, they need your focus. When your walk with the Lord is struggling or you know that you're going off the rails, you need to focus in on the Lord. And it is better that you learn to switch back and forth because there is no such thing as a balance. Are you telling me that Jephthah should have stayed home and not delivered the entire nation of Israel? Absolutely not. That was his time. That was his calling. And so that's the advice that I give people. It's never going to be in balance, but you should always be balancing. You should always be yearning and checking and seeing where you're at. Jephthah, the Lord doesn't cast any judgment here on this situation, does he? But I think he would be disappointed. The Lord never told him to make this vow. How was the Lord think about this daughter, though? Man, the faith of this daughter, the submission of this daughter. You know, in a culture, American culture, that looks down on the tip of our nose at anyone that submits to other people, we see that that's a biblical value. To willfully want to submit to authority is something that the Lord honors, that, he, that blesses Him. What we don't want is to forcibly submit people to our will. That's wrong. But when we submit to the Lord or to each other or to our spouse or children submitting to their parents willfully, there's a great honor in that. It shows great maturity. So we're going to have a little bit more next week with Jephthah in chapter 12. He's given us a lot to ponder If you're going to ask my opinion, which one do you think? I pray to the Lord that we will discover that she was dedicated, but my pessimistic heart knows it is very likely that she gave her life in submission, knowing that this time frame. But again, if it's not written, we don't know. Let's pray. And then we'll spend the rest of this evening in prayer as we do. Lord, we thank you. For your grace and your mercy, we thank you for the things that Jephthah accomplished by your spirit, Lord. And the things that we learn about ourselves, about our society and our culture. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead us to make good decisions and good choices. To be ready for those crucial points, those appointments that you have for us in our lives that change our path. And that we'd make right choices. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide and direct us. That we would be empowered and that we would learn to obey you and honor you above all things. In Jesus' name, amen.